Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk, where we answer your healthcare questions and we also talk about larger topics in the American healthcare system. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm Executive Director of Healthcare Voter, but I've also been a patient because about five years ago now, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So I had a firsthand experience going through the American medical system and the American insurance system and uh, fighting uh, high bills and more. So today we'll get started by answering your questions and feel free to call or text in your questions uh, at any time today and we will answer them in future shows. Our first question is from Lisa. Uh, How do I navigate my insurance? I have no providers in our area that are in network and I may need four weeks of radiation. So to answer that question, welcome Alika from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. And this is a great question. The first thing I always say when it comes to the subject of finding an in-network provider on an ACA plan is don't just take the insurance company's online directory at face value. Always call the provider directly, check if they're in-network or out-of-network directly with them. Um, That's because sometimes those insurance company directories can be quite a bit out of date and providers may have uh, joined networks or left networks or have been left off that site. Um, So that's the first thing is always call the provider. Um, The second thing is, you know, if you have done that and truly there there is nothing in-network near you, um, you can always appeal the insurance company. Um, In that instance, you would need to call them directly Um, If you have that provider or you have a particular provider you want to see and they're able to help you with that process and advocate for you, that can be also uh, very. Uh, The last thing I'll mention is, um, generally speaking, under the ACA, once you've enrolled in a plan, that's your plan for the year, unless you have a qualifying life event. Um, Those are usually things like losing um, coverage or um, having a life change, like getting married, having a baby. Um, If none of those things apply, there is a new special enrollment period uh, that was just uh, announced a couple of uh, weeks ago that is for people who make uh, less than certain income thressholds, uh, less than about $18,000 in 2022. If you fit that criteria, you might also have the opportunity to change uh, to a different plan in your area. Um, So those are uh, the, uh, the things that we would trial first. Mm-hmm. And also to help answer that question, welcome Diane from Just Care and Social Security Works. So in regards to Medicare, if Lisa's on Medicare, uh, what uh, should they do? So as Alica said, never trust the insurer's provider directory. Uh, Medicare has documented year in and year out that these directories from the Medicare Advantage plans are really inaccurate. And so you do want to call the providers in your area. And if there's one that you want to go to in particular, and that provider or a few of them are not part of your plan, find out if they are part of any insurance plans so that when you can switch, you know which plan you want to switch to that will give you access to the care you need. Um, Finally, I would say if it's a either state or federal, um, you do want to file a complaint either with Medicare or with your state because network adequacy is something that every health plan is supposed to comply with. They're supposed to have doctors in their network to meet their enrollees' needs. And if your needs aren't being met because there are no doctors available to you to meet your needs, something is amiss and that needs to be addressed. 
Absolutely. Our next question is from Sal and Diane. Uh, They live out of the country and have for the last 15 years. If they move back to the States, uh, they'll be penalized 10% per year for every year they didn't take Medicare. Uh, So for Sal, him and his wife haven't taken Medicare because it's not recognized in the country they're at. So uh, what can they do about this penalty? Uh, they, they can't afford it and they live on a, a pretty low income. So uh, Diane, what should people do if they've been out of the country and they face this issue? Great question. Serious issue. Obviously, the, the reason for the penalty is so that people don't game the system. So that people who are in the U.S. who um, don't need care avoid paying the premium until they need care. At the same time, obviously, if you're living outside the country, you're not using the system. And why should you be paying what can be lots of money um, for Medicare premiums? Unfortunately, there's no perfect solution. But um, as you mentioned, Laura, if if your income is low, um, you could qualify for either Medicaid or a Medicare savings program. And um, there's what's called the Qualified Medicare Beneficiary Program. The um, SLIMBY uh, program, which is the Specialized Low-Income Beneficiary Program, and um, the QI program, the Qualified Individual Program. And they're all through Medicaid. But um, if your income is low and you qualify for one of these programs, you will not have to pay the premium penalty. So definitely contact your Medicaid office, even if your income is a little higher than what you think are the eligibility levels, because lots of income is actually discounted by Medicaid in determining whether you qualify. So that is your best hope that you can qualify for one of these programs in your state that will waive the premium penalty for you, and you'll be able to sign up for Medicare with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm also wondering if they're not in the United States right now, and they're choosing to potentially choosing to move back, uh, potentially they could go state shopping. If, If they're not tied to any particular state, they could try to find the state that is going to be the best fit for their uh, their income needs. In terms of Medicaid levels, are you saying? Um, mm-hmm. to yeah. That's a good point. Um, for, for this purpose, I think there is a, there are a few states that have more generous levels than others. They're pretty standard, but I think it's a good point. If you wanted to look around, there are some states which are better at getting you qualified for Medicaid or a Medicaid program than others for sure. And Alka, did you did you want to add something? Um, I'm, I think more a question for Diane, but um, I know in some cases, uh, you know, if you've had employer coverage and, and that's why you didn't enroll with Medicare, um, that can um, sometimes help with, with some of those fines. Um, does that apply if you were covered under, say, another national insurance program or something like that? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Exactly. So if you have coverage through your um, through your employer, Um, that's active, um, and it could be through your spouse or yourself, and you don't sign up for Medicare, there is no penalty. But that's because there's an assumption that you're not gaming the system, right? And and you're right. I mean, it, it should extend to people who are living abroad because it's the same kind of thing. But it doesn't at this point. Just a glitch, one of a ter- one of many terrible glitches. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, that's something that our legislators will do something about. Our next question is from Darla. 
Uh, they were quoted over $600 a month uh, for insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, she can't get any help with coverage in Tennessee, uh, and she has uh, high medical bills already that she's dealing with, uh, and she's only been in Tennessee a year. So, Alika, what are the best options for Darla? Thanks, Lauren. First of all, sorry to hear that uh, they were quoted such a high price on their premiums. Um, I will say uh, this year in particular, if that quote is maybe a year old or, or more, very much worth going back and checking again. Um, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, which went into effect last year, um, subsidies are more generous than ever. Uh, more and more people qualify for financial assistance. So number one, go and check again if it, uh, you haven't checked too recently. The second thing is I always recommend, you know, if you've just been looking on healthcare.gov or uh, other sites um, uh, that, that offer ACA plans, it is always worth filling out a full application just to be entirely sure what you qualify for. Sometimes when you get into that application, you might answer questions, um, extra questions that are not in that initial quoting process that might flag you as eligible for um, Medicaid or for, um, uh, you, you might list income in a different way and, and actually you do qualify. So always worth filling out that full end-to-end -end application. Um, I will note, though, that there are some situations, unfortunately, where even if you meet, um, you know, you otherwise uh, uh, think you might qualify, um, that you might not qualify, particularly in a state like Tennessee that has not expanded its Medicaid program. Uh, that means that in the state of Tennessee, you can actually make too little to be eligible for any kind of financial assistance with your health insurance. That's something called being in the Medicaid gap. Um, and in that situation, so that, that's if you make less than about $13,000 a year. If you're in that boat, I will note, it's very, very important whenever you apply for ACA coverage to know that what you qualify for is based on what you think you're going to make um, in the upcoming year. So sometimes people say, well, you know, I, I didn't make that much last year. I'm going to just put that same income on my application. If you can make a good faith estimate that you'll actually be over that $13,000, it is totally okay to, um, to put that on your application if that's your best guess. Um, so that is just one really important point um, in that, uh, you know, it, it, it pays to be a little bit optimistic in that process. Um, another thing that is, is a little more timely that I'll mention is sometimes folks um, are not eligible for uh, subsidies on the marketplace because they are offered coverage uh, through say a spouse or a parent. Um, and in that case, uh, essentially, if the coverage for just the person who's employed is considered affordable, uh, none, no one in the family who's offered that coverage can uh, receive subsidies, even if you're, you know, adding your spouse or adding your dependents is going to cost you thousands and thousands. Um, that is something called the family glitch. Um, and a really exciting piece of news is that uh, the Biden administration just proposed a new rule that would allow people in that situation to get financial assistance for the first time. It is currently just a proposed rule, um, so stay tuned to see if that's finalized. But if you're in that boat, that might be an option for you later this year as well. Thanks. And uh, going back to the second part of her question, um, she owes over 20 grand in medical bills uh, that she can't get help with. So uh, what options are there for people with high medical bills they're already dealing with? Great question. And there are lots of strategies you can take here, um, including seeing if you might qualify for uh, charity care programs, if you were at, for example, a nonprofit hospital, um, getting on a payment plan, um, working with that provider uh, to pay a certain amount of the bill that you can't afford. Um, there are medical billing advocates that can help you with this sort of thing. And 
the Tennessee Justice Center, um, which maybe we can pop a link in the resources, has some great uh, resources on how to work through medical debt as well. Um, there's also a great book called Never Pay the First Bill, which has lots and lots of strategies for dealing with this. So that might be something to check out as well. Absolutely. And we're going to keep talking about high medical bills in future shows, because even though the No Surprises Act went into effect so that people shouldn't get surprise medical bills in the future, uh, there's still cases that are left out of that protection. Uh, and also there are people with already existing medical bills that uh, they need to help fight. So stay tuned for future episodes on this topic. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, Liz Hagen of United States of Care, who will be talking about state-based public options for health insurance. Uh, what are they and what does that mean for you? So welcome, Liz. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start with what the heck is a public option? Uh, so what is this thing and uh, how do you define it? So this is a really good question, and I think one that we talk a lot about in uh, healthcare circles, because, you know, in our work at United States of Care in states, we haven't really seen just one public option. We've seen various iterations of public options and really what they mean. And there's really no one size fits all approach. Um, some have actually been calling them public option style laws, which I think is maybe more applicable. Um, but the way we've really been thinking about it is public options leverage states' existing infrastructure to provide more affordable and dependable coverage. Um, and that's often done through public-private partnerships, sometimes utilizing issuers or managed care organizations to provide coverage that's overseen and regulated by the state. Um, I think another important thing to think about as we're thinking about public options is that the ones that have been explored to date um, or enacted to date have not uh, cost the states money, but have really utilized the federal government through um, 1332 waivers, which we can talk a little bit more about. Um, and the other thing about public options is their reason they're called public options. Um, and that's just because they are an optional coverage choice for people. People are not um, forced into these plans, but they're one of many options for them, um, whether they're on the individual market or small group market, which is how public options have been uh, looked at so far. Um, so, you know, really looking at what works in a state um, and trying to uh, leverage that and then think about what 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 doesn't work and uh, how to fix those areas. Great. So a public option is health insurance, uh, usually through the individual marketplace is is mostly where we're focused on uh, that works, you know, underneath the rubric of the Affordable Care Act. So it has the ACA protections, but it's cheaper than what's on the marketplace today. Is that basically it? I think that's that's the right way to think about it. And I think that actually ties really closely into what we've seen in some of our public opinion research, which is that people really don't want to see wholesale changes to the healthcare system. They want to see changes that make it work better for them, but they don't want to dismantle what we already have in place. People like their providers, some like their insurance companies, um, and they really want to be able to keep what they sort of have and build on more affordable options, build on more choice. And that sort of thing. So I think it's that's the right way to be thinking about it. I think the other thing is that you mentioned individual markets, but small small group market and people working at small businesses have increasingly um, faced affordability challenges. And public options are one of many approaches to help um, those people. And in the states 
um, that have looked at public options, they're increasingly looking at in- including that uh, those group of people as well. Mm-hmm. And when you say that most people support changes to uh, healthcare, the healthcare system as it is, but not wholesale changes, uh, is that kind of like how most people like their congressperson but hate Congress? That could sort of be uh, a good a, a good analogy. I think that that's that's probably partially right. I think the other thing that we're seeing is that people, everyday people support public options in a way that is vastly more popular than I would say that you're seeing their representatives see it. So when we see that, you know, 84% of people want to see changes to their healthcare system, they want to see a more affordable system, they want to see more equitable system, and about two thirds of people actually support public options, you don't necessarily see that two thirds of Republican senators in states or Republican uh, legislators in, at the state level are supporting it. So that's actually a good analogy there, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to go deeper into that, if this is a cheaper form of health insurance that more people will have better coverage, uh, why would anybody besides insurance companies oppose it? Well, I think one of the other areas, and that's another good question, one of the other areas that we've actually seen um, some more opposition is actually on the provider side, because one of the ways to provide more affordable coverage is in reducing premiums. And we know that so much of premium costs are actually driven by the cost of the uh, hospital system. So in Colorado, for example, 40% of the premium cost was driven from hospitals. And hospitals were seeing rates of upwards of 600% of Medicare rates and an average of, I think, 270% of, of Medicare rates, which is simply not sustainable. But as you can imagine, hospitals wouldn't want to see that profit go down. Um, and in Colorado specifically, because that's the second state in, or third state in the country to pass a public option, they had the highest profit margins in the country. And that included both nonprofit and, and for-profit hospitals. And so you're going to see a lot of opposition moving forward um, from hospitals and insurance companies. And insurance companies are obviously opposed to it more because it's more uh, increased competition and more affordable coverage that would make people likely to maybe uh, change plans to a more affordable coverage. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what are the goals of public options besides uh, lowering the cost of health insurance? And how have they been used to address issues within the healthcare system in states to date? Yeah, so I think uh, in addition to the affordable coverage provisions, and I think that we think about that both within premiums and out-of-pocket costs, there's so much focus on on reducing premiums, but we know that there's a lot of people who are also underinsured. So they have high deductibles, high co-pays. And when you look at how much they're paying when you pair the premium and the deductibles and what they're paying um, for the actual care they receive, we know a lot of people are really still struggling. So public options, in addition to reducing the cost of premiums, also provide an opportunity to reduce the cost of -of out-of-pocket costs. So what we've seen in in Colorado, for example, is they are requiring certain high value services to be offered pre-deductible. We've seen other places that look at providing uh, certain mental health services and behavioral health services in addition to the primary care services that uh, people can enjoy as well. So I think that that's something that's really important to think about uh, in addition to just the premium cost. And we really have to move away from that notion that premiums are really the only thing that are moving people. Um, I think a couple other things that are uh, really worth mentioning within public options as well is they're a really good way to think about driving towards a more equitable system. 
Um, and one thing that that Colorado did that I think is really worth mentioning is they've developed um, culturally responsive networks within their Colorado option plan, which will be their their public option plans. So those culturally responsive networks will really be designed with the with an eye towards having providers look and come from the communities that they are serving. So people are more likely to adhere to care, more likely to feel comfortable to even go to the doctor and more likely to be able to have that, you know, regular source of care. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to think about because when we're thinking about public options and driving towards equity, it's not just about reducing the numbers of uninsured and providing more affordable options, but we can really use some of the existing kind of levers within policy design to, to, to move forward within the design of how public options um, can be uh, enacted. Um, and then you also mentioned about sort of system costs. And I think that's in another another area we're increasingly see, seeing public options really look at is driving towards more value, whether we're incentivizing providers uh, to provide uh, more value-based care or whether we are incentivizing people themselves to move towards more of those high value services and getting, uh, getting and reducing sort of system costs that way. And then last is, uh, is we we know that uh, the, and and Alica certainly knows this from her example uh, from her time at uh, Health Sherpa. It's very complicated to shop for health insurance. It's really hard to make those apples to apples comparisons because you're comparing so many different pieces. And so one of the things that public options can do is really help people make that apples to apples comparison through uh, the design of uh, uh, through standardized plan design within public options, which really enables, uh, sort of makes consistent uh, coverage across the different types of uh, care. Okay, so uh, one of the benefits of a public option is just making it easier to shop because uh, the insurance uh, plans are more comparable rather than going to the marketplace today and seeing 50 plans and not being sure what's what. Yeah, I think actually, that you know, when we're thinking about choice, it's such an interesting thing, because we know on the one hand, people really want choice, but on the other hand, they don't want to be overwhelmed with choice. So in a lot of areas, there may be such limited choice that the introduction of a public option plan is exactly what's needed. And that will bring more affordable coverage and will bring them uh, additional choices of coverage. At the, at the same time, there's a lot of areas in particular in, in more um, in the cities that there's so much choice that you're comparing really basically the same thing. And if you don't have priority about your provider or the type of medication you're on, you're really overwhelmed with, um, with making those, um, making those decisions. And I'm seeing Alec uh, nod her head because these are the choices that people are making every day on Health Sherpa and when they're enrolling in Affordable Care Act coverage. So standardized plans, they don't have to be through public options, but they really have a consistent sort of uh, benefit design so that you're not making those choices, but you can really focus on the things like providers rather than how much it's going to cost you every month and what those out-of-pocket costs are going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's my understanding that some insurance companies are kind of spamming the exchanges by by putting out a whole bunch of plans that are basically the same thing, and but slightly different just so that they, they can overwhelm people with having 20 listings instead of two. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Oregon and how the Medicaid unwinding means that millions of Americans are at risk of losing their health insurance in the next few months and how Oregon is looking to potentially... Uh, solve this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. A very timely one as well. So, so Oregon's been um, really looking at public option um, 
has been exploring public options for some time. And they uh, had a study that came out last year that looked at how they could, what, what a public option in Oregon would mean. Um, and they, they kind of took different pieces of different state approaches, and but realized that the public health emergency unwinding was really the most imminent kind of challenge that the state would have. They have more people enrolled in Medicaid than they, I think, have ever had in the state, which also means that the insurance rates are higher than they've ever been, which is a great thing. And they want to preserve those gains and make sure that people who have had Medicaid and other sources of coverage don't lose that coverage. So last, uh, in the last legislative session in, in Oregon, they uh, passed a, a, a bridge plan, which is basically, as a lot of us think about it, a basic health insurance plan. Um, not necessarily with the exact uh, definition of a basic health plan, but with the idea of covering those people that are likely to churn between Medicaid and other sources of coverage. So that 138 to 200% of poverty population that we know are really the bulk of people who are likely to churn, which means they're unlikely to seek medical care that they need. It costs the system a lot of money for them to re-enroll. It takes a lot of time and effort on their behalf. There's a lot of administrative burden. So uh, Oregon, in addition to a lot of other states, has really been looking at what they can do to capture this population and, and keep them really um, enrolled and protected. Um, and so the bridge plan would, um, would provide coverage to those people. And uh, they basically have a task force that will be identifying how that will actually be designed. It's not even clear if it will be, as I said, a basic health plan in the sense of the Affordable Care Act. So Section th uh, 1331, or if they're going to utilize the more traditional 1332 approach, which is what a lot of states that have done public options um, have done. And I think Oregon and other states are really want to think about not just that bridge population and that 138 to 200, but we're basically just moving the cliff of people that are then left, you know, in limbo sort of between Medicaid and other co coverage sources. We don't want to move that cliff just to 200% of poverty, but we really want to protect people that are still at a low to moderate income um, area. And that's something that uh, uh, public options can do and something that Oregon's looking at exploring as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit, uh, there's, there's a whole, if the problem is that healthcare costs too much, health insurance costs too much, there's a whole bunch of different ways to tackle that. And public options are one, uh, Medicaid buy-in, letting people buy into Medicaid or Medicare buy-in, letting people buy into Medicare as individuals are another. Um, and, and then there's also basic health plans and so on. Uh, can, can you talk about how all of these different things compare to lowering the cost that we're all paying for healthcare? It's such a good question, because I think so much of what's happening right now is there's a lot of there's a lot of momentum on public options. There's a number of states that have moved in, in, in the last year um, on public options. And I think because of that, a lot of states say, well, I want one of those. Um, and I think the, the key to this is we really have to think about what what are we really trying to solve and how do we go about solving that? And so you don't necessarily just see one approach that works. Um, but we can think of them as one of the tools in the toolbox. And for a lot of states, it is the approach that can make the most sense. I also think it's a, you know, we don't have to necessarily frame everything as public option versus Medicaid buy-in, but really thinking about what do people want to see out of the system and how can we leverage the, the infrastructure that we have both on the private and public side to provide that coverage. Um, you know, Connecticut, for example, they were looking at doing a buy-in that would allow small businesses to buy into their state employee health plan, which is a totally different approach um, and can be thought of as a you know public option or it can be thought of as something else. 
but it's really to tackle one of the issues that they saw in the state, which is what they uh, saw with small business uh, unaffordable coverage. Great. So it sounds like uh, states are experimenting and coming up with different approaches. And we will know more in the next few years with what is uh, successful. Can you talk a little bit about what's already happened in the state of Washington and now in Nevada and Colorado? Uh, so like, what is there already that's already working and what is in the works? Yeah, so Washington Cascade Care was the first public option that passed in the country. And because of that, I think there were some lessons learned that led to them having to sort of go back to the legislation and iterate again. Um, And part of those lessons learned, I think, were really important for other states to be thinking about as they were designing their approaches. Some of those things were included in, you know, thinking about how much do we pay the providers and how do we incentivize the providers to continue to be in network um, when their provider rates might be a little bit lower. So there's in, you know, ways to incentivize or require providers to participate. In the case of Colorado, um, they're really putting it on issuers to reduce the cost of premiums by 5% every year. And if issuers are unable to do that, then they come back to the state and the state says, why weren't you able to do that? And if you're not able to do that, then we will then set the rates at such a level that we'll be able to reach those targets. So you see there's a lot of different kind of ways. And I think one state's kind of picking up on, oh, that worked in that way, but let's iterate it a little bit different because we might not have managed care in our state. So they can't provide it like they're doing in Nevada, for example. Um, And I think the bigger lesson here is really what the federal government can learn here. Um, Congressional leaders have had a lot of interest in in what public options can look like at the federal level. Uh, We know it didn't pass in um, in the ultimate Affordable Care Act and was one of those really contentious pieces that was sort of left out. Um, But there's congressional leadership that's really interested in how this can work. And now that we have a lot of these lessons from the states, I think it's really incumbent on uh, congressional leaders to think about how that can be uh, leveraged at the at the federal level as well, so that more people um, can benefit. Mm -hmm. And a lot rides on what happens this November. But uh, regardless, if wherever you live, if you think your health care costs are too high, which I think most people will agree with, uh, contact not only your senators and your congressperson, but contact your state legislators, because there are things that they can do on the state level easier than on the federal level. Because as Liz just mentioned, there was a fight to do a public option on the federal level and it failed. But we're seeing some experimentation on the state level, even with enormous amounts of money being spent in opposition. So your state legislators are maybe more likely to hear that this is a real problem and attempt to do something about it. Would you agree, Liz? Absolutely. And I think there's been a lot of really sort of eager state legislators that know they're constantly hearing from members um, in their districts that are saying, it's just unaffordable. We can't continue to do this. And because of that, state leaders have really acted. Um, and I think it's absolutely important to continue to let your you know, voices be heard and, and share those kind of uh, examples so people can uh, take the action necessary to address those. Absolutely. And so we can build to a world where everybody has health care. Well, thank you very much for, thank you everybody uh, for listening to Care Talk. We will be back next week and continue answering your health care and health insurance questions. So stay tuned and keep asking your questions. We'll get you answers. Thank you. <laughs>